You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. replied, you're so nice. I was pranking you. Heart emoji. Mom replied, if you knew how dumb I was thinking you were, you wouldn't say I was nice. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That is really great. Anyway, all right. Why don't you stand, and I'm going to read our next section from Galatians chapter 5. It's page 974. I'm going to start in verse 13. Galatians 5. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, um, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you uh, corporately here as a body that you would inspire and lead and educate and illumine and uh, strengthen us this morning to learn and to receive and to be ultimately doers of your words. Thank you, Father, that these words are not separated from your heart, but they are connected. They express your very character and your very being. And thank you that the scriptures are a promise. And thank you that we're promised today that if we live by the Spirit, we will not have to carry out desires that get bent the wrong ways. So lead us today, Father. Bring healing, restoration, strength to those who need strength, comfort to those who need comfort, Father, a fire to those who are apathetic. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. Now, I want to say this morning, this is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. And so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and, and to keep a pen in your hand and jot down notes. We're going to cover a lot of things this morning. Begin at verse 13. Our very calling is for freedom. Freedom is the goal of the gospel. But as Nick shared earlier, this freedom is not the same as the West now defines it. In the West today, we define freedom as the ability to do whatever I want, and nobody can tell me I can't do it. Rather, this freedom is a freedom to live within your God-ordained purpose. This is the freedom to be truly human. 
not something less. Actually, in verse 15, this usage of words refers to animals who are biting and devouring, who are tearing and consuming one another. And one has to ask the question, how does that happen? How can a faith community turn into a jungle? Well, it can happen, and it happens when the view of my justification or my acceptance from God is based on my spiritual performance. If I view myself without grace, I will view my brothers and sisters in the same way. They too must measure up to my standards and expectations to be fully accepted. When this grace-deprived view becomes ingrained in a spiritual culture, when legalism pervades the preaching, rules as a means of comparison, spiritual comparison, are elevated. Rules come to the surface. And the result is that there are arbitrary standards that are not clear from Scripture. It could be a tradition. It could be an individual conviction. It could be a pet doctrine. Or it could simply be a preference for the way things ought to get done. All of these things take on a greater role and importance than the whole of Scripture. Enforcers emerge to ensure these rules are maintained. And even good churches can quickly become toxic. And this can be exceedingly painful, this kind of discord and division. And some of you have lived through that and tasted that. And this was the toxicity that Paul saw unfolding in Galatia and why he is so passionate and leaves no room for false teaching. Now also look in verse 13 and look at this word flesh. See it there in verse 13? Many times, many times Christians have interpreted this word to mean only the human body. And in doing so, they have overemphasized the sins of the physical body and underplayed the sins of the heart. Flesh is the Greek word sarx, referring to our whole self, body, mind, and heart. It is our natural self. It is what rules us. The Bible says that through, though our natural self has a desire for good, its bend is to oppose God's rule and leadership. Our natural self poisons and undermines our desire for goodness, turning it into a means of self-glorification or self-protection. The natural self can never, 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 it can come out right, never produce the freedom to live within our purpose. Tom Schreiner said it this way, true freedom must not be equated with natural human desires. He goes on to say that we are truly free when we are no longer under the compulsion or dominion of natural human desires. Now, as you absorb that and let that wash over you, and let me tease this out a little bit because this is so easily misunderstood. This statement 
runs directly into the headwinds of our culture. For our culture insists that in order for you to be truly human and in order for you to be truly free, we must not follow society's scripts, we must not follow family scripts, but act on and live out what is truly inside of us. Follow your desires wherever they lead, even if they run counter to known science or centuries of Western tradition. Some cultural critics have called this expressive individualism. Living out of the authentic self, this is what it says, living out of the authentic self is regarded as the only pathway that is noble and heroic. Now I challenge you this week, pay attention to our movies, pay attention to our TV shows, and you will quickly discern that this expressive individualism is the dominant narrative. Whether it's a Disney movie or whether it's a more action drama movie, this idea of living out of the authentic self is what we regard as the truly heroic, the truly noble. Now, as believers, as Christians, we do empathize with aspects of this script. We, too, live as holy rebels in this world. But here's where we differ. Where we differ is that we do not implicitly trust the natural desires within us. We do not affirm that to desire something is to legitimize it, to make it natural or authentic. We hold up our desires in the light of the scriptures. Now, all of this is to say that desire, all of this is not to say, I'm sorry, all of this is not to say that desire is a bad thing. God made us with good desires relating to our creation. He did not make us stoic or robotic or devoid of desire or pleasure or sensations. Sometimes the Christian life has been wrongly imagined as the stoic suppression of every desire because desire in itself is evil. While that's true in Eastern religions, that's not true in the Christian faith. The Christian faith affirms desire, that they are God-generated, and they are meant to be fulfilled in and through Him. But the Bible story says that those desires have been polluted in our natural selves as a result of Adam's sin. Now that sin is more, it's not so much like a coffee stain on a white shirt, but that sin is more like a red dye that changes, it gets, works itself into the essence of the shirt and changes the very color of it. Now, Tom Schreiner goes on to say this. He says, our deepest desires are realized when we do God's will. Here's the upside-down freedom from what the world tells you it means to be free. This is the freedom Paul's talking about. Freedom to do what we've been designed to do. And isn't that true for those of us who have tasted this, right? 
Can I get an amen? I mean, isn't this true? Don't you find that when you have confidence that you are doing God's will, that you have an overwhelming pleasure? When I know that I have loved or served or spoken in his name, I feel a pleasure over me. And friends, there is nothing like it. And I know many of you in the same room have, you know what I'm talking about. When I've spent time with him and sensed his presence, there is nothing like it. There's no other feeling, not the feeling of your team winning. A surprising game. Okay? Not that feeling. Not the feeling of physical intimacy. Not the feeling of comfort from rich friendship. None of that can match the feeling when you know you are doing his will. And you feel his pleasure over you. That's freedom. Now, before I go to the next section, before I go to the next section, look at verse 14. This is pretty confusing. I want to clarify this. Verse 14, Paul quotes the law. It's Leviticus 19:18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you might say, Paul, isn't that a contradiction? Did you just forget you're saying we are living no longer under the law? But again, remember, to be under the law, as Paul says, is to be under the burden to obey it flawlessly for salvation. We could not do that, so God lifted it from us, but not without a cost. Jesus entered the world as a Jew and obeyed the law perfectly so he could become our just sacrifice for our sins. No longer under that same burden, we still seek, we're still called to obey God. But now it's from a place of gratitude, and now it is from the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives the essence of the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is our first part of our message. That being, and I didn't, I didn't, did I, I think I defined this. What did we call it? What did we call the first part of this message? Help me out. I don't remember what it was. Thank you, Justin, the purpose of freedom. Let's go on now to verse 16 and look at the conflict itself. Look at the conflict. Beginning in verse 16, I mentioned before that the natural self is unopposed. But when Christ comes into your life through the Holy Spirit, he renews your heart. We are a new creation. At the same time, we still continue to have the desires of the sarks, the natural self, and these are against the Spirit. They are in conflict within us. Now, in the older versions of the Bible, they translated this word flesh, lust. Now, again, this translation is maybe even less helpful because we equate that word with only sexual desires. But the Greek word for desire in verse 17 that's translated flesh is really more like something like an overheated desire or an inordinate desire, a desire that is out of rhythm, that's disproportionate. It has become a consuming, all-controlling drive. 
This is what he's getting at. It could be for sex, but it could also be for selfish ambition or material gain or controlling others or comfort. For example, here's what I mean. Beneath an all-consuming desire for sex is a desire for intimacy. Beneath an all-consuming desire to control the decisions of others is a desire for, for security. Beneath an all-consuming desire for recognition through your career is a desire for significance. Our natural self takes these desires and twists them for the purpose of self-salvation. If we cannot trust that God is good and full of grace, then we must take control of our own lives and work a system toward our own salvation, whether it is spiritual or secular. Now look at verse 17. Actually, let's look at that quote. I missed that quote. Let's take a look at that, Justin, if we could, by Tim Keller. The main problem is not our desires for bad things, but our over-desire for good things. The main problem is not our desire for bad things, but our over-desire for good things. Now look at verse 17. I love this little verse, this little phrase. The Spirit also desires things. The Spirit desires things. Do you picture the Spirit that way? We often picture the Spirit as passive or inactive, but He is working, and He has longings. His overarching longing is to reveal the life of Christ to you and in you, to disclose to you every spiritual blessing you have in Christ, to make clear to you and to impart to you a spiritual gift so that you can participate in the growth of the church. And yet, at the same time, as he longs for things, so our flesh longs for things. Do you sense that conflict within you? This conflict of competing desires? You may have assumed, you may have thought, hey, if I'm a Christian, why do I still experience this relentless conflict? I thought if the Holy Spirit takes over, I could just float along without any pressures or temptations. Can't I just let go and let God? If I love God, why do I still experience these terrible thoughts and frightening temptations? This does not seem like freedom to me. And you may have asked yourself the question, am I missing something that every other Christian has some special key to? Am I not normal if I feel this way? And here is Paul's assuring answer, no, you're experiencing what every Christian does. The struggle and the competition of these desires inside of us is the normal Christian life. And here is why. Here is why. You see, we live in an already, but not yet, span of time. We live in between these two overlapping ages. In the future, after Christ returns, remember we said this last week, when Christ returns, you're going to be perfectly just and perfectly loving, without contempt or envy, 
Hope you've been meditating on that this week. This is what I challenged you to do. Completely secure and non-anxious. We'll have an unstained purity and we'll see God clearly. This is the hope of righteousness that Paul urged us to wait for. But that future age is not yet realized. We still operate in this old self, the natural self remaining in us. And therefore, good desires can get bent sideways and temptations still plague us. And I find that I am in conflict and sometimes it is constant and it is fierce. Now in the future, the old self will be finally done away with, crucified with Jesus. But until then, we are in a battle. Luther put it this way, this tension. He said, we are sinful yet righteous or just. And it's so important that we hold these two ideas together in our minds. When we recognize we are sinners, it grounds us, it humbles us, it reminds us we need grace. At the same time, when we remember we are holy, we are just in his sight, it gives us an un believable optimism and confidence and courage. The gospel balances these two things. You know, we will be holy. We will be just in the future. You know, if I have an inheritance of $100 million coming to me, in one sense, I could argue today, even before it comes, that I am a very rich person even though that inheritance is yet to be realized. So in one sense, I'm already wealthy today, even though I've not yet realized it. This is how the future reverberates and impacts my identity of who I am today. Now let me comment on verse 17. There's just something beautiful and revolutionary that's tucked away in this verse. Do you see what it says? These these desires of the flesh work against you so that you don't do what you want to do. I don't see a lot of people commenting on this, but it's quite amazing. Who does Paul assume is the true you? The Sarks are the, are the renewed person. The old self or the new self? He assumes the true you is the new self. And he says more about this in Romans chapter 7, Ephesians chapter 4. You see, let me just take a little bit of walk through history because this is really important for us. Again, because the way you think about this will impact how much you believe about God. You see, it's been taught through the ages that there are two natures living in us engaged in a 50-50 fight, Right? Now, the ancient Greek philosophers said the fight was between reason and emotion, the lower self and the higher self, or the mind versus the body. Much of this Greek thought leaked into Christian teaching, and Christians mistakenly taught that the body was evil, therefore, and that emotion was never, never, never to be trusted. 
And it also leaked into this 50-50 fight that we envision between the flesh and the spirit within us. Christians have been taught that the spirit and the flesh are like two equally sized big dogs fighting inside of you, fighting for supremacy. And whichever one you feed more will win. If you feed the spirit dog, it'll win. If you feed the flesh dog, it'll win. Now, I, this analogy never helped me. It only confused me. And I think the problem with this analogy is that it confuses who is the real you. This analogy implies that the real you is actually a whole separate entity from the good dog and the bad dog. As if you're three people. That's very confusing. And by the way, it also assumes that the real you is this third person who is in the driver's seat and is a wholly rational person who can rationally choose between those two. That also has some scriptural problems. I have personally found this picture confusing and not helpful. When thinking about the real self, the real you, I like to use an analogy that the Bible uses, one that Jesus used. You may find this surprising, but it's right there. Jesus likened you to a tree. How about that? An ent. You Lord of the Rings fans ever wanted to be an ent? So wise and patient. I love, I don't you just love the ants? There's something about them. Jesus said if a tree bears good fruit, it is because the tree is good. In other words, the sap is good. The life within it is good. If a tree bears bad fruit, it is because the life within it, the sap within it, is poisoned. And there is a disease working from inside the tree. When you become a believer, God renews your heart and he makes you new. And leaning into this analogy, he begins to work into your life good sap, life-giving sap. And that sap pushes back the poison and heals the diseases that produce bad fruit in you. And as I give more and more room for that life-giving sap to run freely through my veins, it will inevitably produce good fruit. The disease, the bad sap, is still there and will poison the fruit if there's no life-giving sap to distill it. But in Christ, in Christ, that poison is pushed to the edges so that it no, neither has to define or control the fruit that is born and enjoyed by others. I think this is a more helpful way to see my life and my struggle within one, it helps me see that I'm just one person. The tree is unitary. It's not a threesome. And secondly, it helps me to see that the real me, the solid me, has been spiritually renewed. I am a new creation. I have been given a new heart. The old self remains, but I don't think it's 50-50. It is a husk. It's still in me, but it no longer has the power to define me. The flesh, the old person, has been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer the real you. While it still wars within us, it has been defeated, and in the age to come, it will be utterly destroyed. So Paul wraps up this section, therefore, 
He wraps up this section after describing the conflict, and he says in verse 19, it is now the Spirit that leads me, not the law. It's the Spirit that offers us assurance that even though I am a sinner, I am loved, and I am still considered holy in his sight. And now for the final section, the victory. Because of this renewal, because God has given us a new heart, because God has made us a new creation, because God has given us his Holy Spirit, we now can experience victory in this life and power in this life. But how do we know if we are controlled and walking by the Spirit? What is the diagnostic test? How do we know? Paul tells us. The evidence of whether or not we are living by the Spirit's power is seen in the outcome of our lives. You see, what is happening inside of us can never be insulated or roped off from others forever. If we are ruled by the natural self, the works or acts of self-salvation will eventually bubble to the surface. And Paul gives a detailed list of the flesh here as he does other places. Look at verse 19. The first thing he does is he relates four sexual sins. Secondly, he gives two religious sins, idolatry and sorcery. Then there's a third grouping, which is focused on relational sins. There are eight listed. And finally, there are two sins related to alcohol or substance abuse or pleasure-seeking. Even the word orgies in verse 21, scholars believe, points to drinking orgies. Now, one thing that is significant is not that this list is exhaustive. I don't think it's exhaustive. It's not a complete list. But what's significant is that it pertains to the whole self, your spiritual self, your relational self, your social self, your inward thoughts, and then finally your sexual self. There's not elevation of just one area. And he finishes with a warning saying that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not the outcome of freedom that Paul has been describing. Going back to the law and putting yourself under the law of Galatians will not solve these issues. If you're involved in these actions and these, and these activities and these attitudes, you're still enslaved. Any religious salvation without Christ, any moral posturing without Christ will not have the power to change the essence of this. This is the natural self coming to the light. Now, keep in mind, the thought behind Paul's warning here is for those who habitually walk in these practices and these attitudes without repentance, without remorse, or without any movement towards change. Lapses in these things do not indicate a loss of salvation, as that would go against Paul's message of grace. But to be led by the Spirit is to experience change, is to experience victory, to become the people we want to become, the people we were meant to be. And in verse 22, Paul says, here's what the change will look like. Here's what the outcome, here's what the fruit 
as the Spirit is in you and working, here's what it looks like. As we read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth. Now, there doesn't seem to be much organization here in these nine, except to say that love is the first and the greatest. And we've already said that this fruit, this fruit is inevitable. It can't not happen. Another person said it this way, healthy things have to grow. When you walk by the Spirit, this is a promise, not an imperative. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a beautiful promise. When we walk by the Spirit, we grow in these nine things. I like what Tim Keller said. He suggested there's some meaning here to Paul's metaphor, that it's more than just simply that fruit is inevitable. He also says that the picture of fruit points to the fact that our growth is gradual in these things. As with biological growth, you never see it happening. You can only measure it after time. How much we have grown is usually measured by a difficult circumstance. Many times I hear people, many, many times in my counseling, I've heard someone say something like, I could never have handled this situation a few years ago like I'm handling it today. What is that? It's a sign. It's a measurement of growth. Our growth is often gradual. Another thing that fruit points to is that our growth The fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. It grows internally. The change made in us is deeper than the characteristics themselves. The change that happens within us in the life of the Spirit gets to the depth of our inward thoughts, our desires, and our motives. That is what produces the fruit. And then fourthly, Christian growth is symmetrical. This is a cool thought. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they grow together in us. These fruits are interdependent. This is what a Spirit-filled person looks like, Paul is saying. If you're walking by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, this is what it'll look like. For example, if you're growing in love, but not self-control, okay, If you're growing in love but not self-control, your pointing to your growth in love may be more of a natural temperament or a natural part of your personality and not truly growth and gifting that comes from the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into our lives, we find that we grow in all nine of these qualities. So, this is the victory that God has promised through this conflict Though there's a battle and struggle within us, there is tremendous reason for optimism today. That we can walk in freedom, we can walk in the power of the Spirit, we can find and connect to our truest desires and act on them in the power of the Spirit because God is in us. Let me, before we close here this morning, I'm just about out of time, let me just mention two things here to try to bring this down. I've already mentioned a lot of potential applications, a lot of things for you to talk about. But let me just finish with two practical things to think about in terms of doing. 
Here's number one. And I think we had to say this this morning because we've been pushing, pushing, pushing on freedom, and it's in our text here this morning, and that is don't abuse your freedom. Freedom can be abused. And Paul urges them, don't abuse your freedom. Do you remember when school let out? Yeah, it's a great feeling. Remember the last day of finals? Do you remember that first day on campus when you moved away from home? I mean, those are all these times. Remember these stories we have of when you finally broke up from all the rules, all the oppression? You had freedom. And what do we tend to do? We tend to abuse our freedom, to use it for ourselves. Paul's not teaching that here. For example, let me just mention a couple of things. Some of us, for example, for example, we attend movies that we know the content of the movie will sacrifice our integrity. We know conscience-wise we should not see it, but we go anyway, and we persuade ourselves that we have freedom in Christ. I've talked with individuals who knew the divorce they were pursuing was wrong. They knew it was not biblically sanctioned, and there is certainly such a thing. But they knew it wasn't. But they pushed forward anyway with the appeal of, don't I have freedom in Christ? Thirdly, some have sacrificed so much for their career. Others have bent their priorities way out of balance through material acquisition and through living way beyond their means and by going way into debt, all saying as a Christian, I have freedom, don't I? Some use alcohol in light of their freedom, but have turned that freedom and abused that freedom and regularly look for that high or regularly get drunk. Again, these are all, friends, abuses of freedom. This is not the kind of freedom that Paul was calling us to or referring us to. And secondly, look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. Paul says, and this is so practical here, if we just know what he means, verse 25. If we live, if we depend on, it's the same thing in verse 16, if we walk by, if we rely on, if we cling to the Spirit, if we walk by the Spirit. Remember what I said. This relates to the Spirit's initiative. The Spirit is speaking. The Spirit is guiding. The Spirit is counseling. The Spirit is working. The Spirit is seeking you. The Spirit is wanting, desiring, longing, yearning to work in your life. This is His initiative. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now this word, keep in step, is a different word. And we've explained this before, but to keep in step is to order your life, to have a rhythm to your life, to have a pattern in your life that recognizes God is first in my life. And so in this way, we make a commitment to attend services on a weekly basis. We commit to Christian friendship. We commit to tithing and giving. 
We commit to Bible study and to prayer. We commit to the spiritual disciplines, not because they will prove we love God, not so that God will love us more, but because we love him and want to know him and want to please him. And as we establish a pattern of life, we give the Spirit access. We, give, we put ourselves in a position to hear his voice, to receive his filling, to receive his outpouring, to receive what he wants to give to us. That happens as we commit to a pattern of life, to a pattern of being that allows us to receive what the Spirit gives us. This is how we carry this out, to walk in a pattern. When we do this, verse 24, when we do this, this allows us to crucify, to put on the cross that sarks. We crucify our sarks, our old self, one, by looking backwards and seeing the victory God has given us, and secondly, by on a daily basis, surrendering to the Spirit of Jesus Christ and surrendering our lives to Him and determining through His grace and through His power, I am not going to let this old person dominate and rule me as he did in the past. I am going to crucify him. I'm not going to mess around. I'm not going to play with him. I'm not going to tease it around. I'm not going to be muddle-minded. I am going to crucify him. Scholars have gone back and forth on which one of these is Paul's meaning here. My sense is I look at all of Paul's writing in the New Testament. I don't think we need to separate the two. I think he has both in mind. He wants us to look back first and be secure in our victory, but then on a daily basis... He wants us to crucify that old self through the power of the Spirit. This is what will lead, friend, this is what will produce a victory and it will produce the fruit of the Spirit. You will find yourself growing. As you immerse yourself in the life of the Spirit, you will find yourself growing in the power and the fruit of the Spirit. Lastly, Keller tells a great story about how growth is inevitable. And he tells the story of a man that when he died, he was buried under a marble slab. And somehow an acorn got into his grave. Over time, gradually and unnoticed, the acorn grew. And eventually it split open the marble that laid over top of him. Such was its power. Now, if you were going to bet, what would you bet on? A tiny seed or a marble slab? Well, if you don't know how things grow, I bet you'd put your money on the marble. But of course, in fact, the money should be on the acorn. Isn't this encouraging? When we think of how marble-like our sinful natures can be, it's something that seems as small when it comes to us in the kingdom of God, something as small as an acorn can grow and uproot that sinful nature. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning as we engage and immerse ourselves in your words and we learn what it means to experience 
the life and the power and the fruit of the Spirit. And now, Father, as we give back to you through song and through offering, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring freedom and healing and salvation in ways that we can't explain. Father, nobody can explain why or how a little seed grows in to an apple tree. And nobody can explain what might take place this morning to heal, to reconcile, to bring eternal security and eternal life and salvation, to bring assurance of love and comfort, to bring fire where there's been a, a, a loss and a lack. But come, Holy Spirit, in these moments. We give to you our our offering as a way, Lord, not of winning your love, but we give our offering to you, our resources to you as a way of showing that we love you. We give it in gratitude because Christ, the just one, died for us, the unjust. And so we give our song and our resources and our prayers because you have loved us. And we give it with a grateful heart. Continue to lead us, Father. You're not done here yet. You're not done working yet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.